0: everybody welcome back to the consummate athlete podcast i'm molly herford and when i'm not outside riding 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 and running i'm probably inside writing about it
1: and i'm peter glassford i'm a registered kinesiologist and an endurance coach and you are here on the consummate athlete podcast where we talk about all different things related to movement and to the people that do all sorts of different movements and we try and pull that back into things we can use in our own daily movement routine. Uh, Yeah we're riding a lot right now we're at a training camp uh, with some young athletes and trying to keep up so Molly's doing a great job of that.
0: (laughs) Thanks dear yeah it's been it's been a really fun month we're in I think week week three of four right now and you know athletes are, are doing awesome learning a lot of you know stuff on and off the bike it's been really fun to you know not just work with them on the the riding and some of the the climbs around Girona and Spain but also you know things like cooking dinner and my favorite soapbox why you should get out of your chamois Laundry. immediately post-ride yes. Yes. <laughs> just
1: having that discussion in the kitchen um maybe not getting out of your chamois in the kitchen I guess but keeping it out of the kitchen
0: yep this is not the place for the Donald Duck style of post-ride
1: right yeah what else is going on in life
0: oh man it's it's pretty much that. actually, you know what though? We've been doing some yoga sessions with the the young riders, and that's been really fun. It's been a while since I've gotten to actually teach yoga in real life. Um, and I've been really, really enjoying that
1: mhm, yeah, a lot of the kids were i heard wild claims such as I can finally breathe or something uh, yes. like that. So,
0: yes. So just, just so everyone knows, if I ever do a yoga workshop, you will leave being able to, to breathe. breathe better on the bike. <laughs> I just and... you
1: leave it like that you'll be able to breathe when you leave.
0: That's true. <laughs>
1: Both rhymes and is hopefully true.
0: Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's pretty much been our existence this past month. So yeah, it's been fun.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we have, uh, we're sort of getting into the, the bitter middle, maybe late, middle of uh, winter so everyone's you know getting ready for events and things are getting more real as we approach that that spring or the hints of spring Uh, so hopefully everyone's preparation is going well
0: yeah and in the last couple weeks everyone's you know into whatever their big races all the lotteries are pretty much done I think
1: yeah I think we're through that season hopefully hopefully people are getting ready yeah maybe some later stuff is still to be done
0: yeah. Um, as far as housekeeping notes, uh, we know we, we owe you guys a Q&A podcast coming up soon. So if you have any questions, definitely head over to consummateathlete.com and hit us up there or find us on at, uh, Instagram, Twitter, at Molly J. Herford, at Peter Glassford. Um, but one question we've been getting, you know, kind of on and off for the last couple of years is this idea of you know, environmental responsibility and sustainability um, around endurance sport. And, you know, it's a tricky question. We tried to talk about it a bit in a and a uh, about a month ago and sort of talking about like the small scale stuff that, you know, we as endurance athletes can be doing to reduce our carbon footprint a bit. But today's episode is a little bit of a detour from our normal, but we thought you guys might really enjoy because it.
1: Because we've gotten that question. Yeah. And it is, I think, you know, right now everyone's on about meat and there's like all these like different ideas about environment and you know it is a, a concern right and we, we're all trying to find you know that one thing that's going to solve all the problems and I think today we have uh, a longtime friend and one of the smartest people I know uh, Usman Valiante on and he's a senior policy analyst which I, I, I do get him to sort of explain a bit more about what he does and how how he got into that role uh, but basically he goes and I, we always think about it, he's the guy out there like fighting uh, you know for these environmental things he did a lot with bottle return uh, stuff so you like if you get a beer bottle you can return it in a lot of uh, Canadian provinces um, and his his passion recently at least has been around this idea of circular economy for plastics um, and, and he talks a lot about why plastics are are both necessary, but also, you know, damaging to the environment. And you can see that in a lot of places where it's, you know, in the ocean and washing up and there's all this, this waste, but he talks about, you know, both there's an economic concern because we do need to get products out and businesses need to continue economy and so forth. Uh, but also we do need to look at the the environment, right? And It's a very hopeful, I think, discussion as much as the environmental discussion gets a little down in the dumps, so to speak, sometimes um so I I love Is it. that like
0: a really bad dump pun
1: I, I think that's what I was yeah so to speak oh. doesn't that what isn't that what so to speak means um yeah so I think it's some really good things and I, I think whether you're into environmental concepts I've just found this whole idea of circular economy just like made my brain thinking about similar similar things and just it, it took me in all different ideas and stuff about life and so forth so whether okay. well, you're passionate about environment or not I think hopefully this will be an enjoyable conversation
0: also we have to side note and say Usman might be like the most consummate athlete of consummate athletes like if you're stranded on a desert island and there's one man that you could like have to probably like build you a raft and get you out of it
1: yeah. And he's, it's hard to get, he's very humble in that respect. So I don't know how much of that came out. I tried to pull a bit of that out of the episode. We actually talked for like three hours. Um,
0: this is not a three hour episode. No,
1: um, we kept it very business, but I did try and pull it a bit. But yeah, Usman has taken me on like a couple of the most wild adventures I've been on. I think in my life, we went canoeing at night in a provincial park, which I don't like going on water period. And I don't like being out at night. And we were out at night in the middle of a provincial park.
0: And that's sort of like before provincial parks and Ontario, like, had better cell reception. Well, there was nothing. Yeah, no, he
1: pulled out a glowing compass and somehow, like, aligned it to the horizon, and we we did two quite long, like, portages carrying the canoe and found our friends in the middle of this, like, massive swath of Canadian wilderness, Um, and I still have no idea how we didn't just drown, Um, but he he got me there. So, um, yeah, I mean, I was super... Excited that he was able to come onto the podcast and talk and uh, we've linked a bunch of stuff in the show notes. Uh, you can see who's been talk. You can see he has a I think we referenced there like white paper uh, on the circular economy if you are curious about it. Um, so, yeah, I think hopefully this is a good exciting and hopefully a, a bit of I don't think there'll be answers for anyone, but hopefully some hope and maybe some ideas uh, for for some people, you know, might be able to take action in, in their their lives and their jobs. Um Yeah. All right.
0: Let's let's dive in. Enjoy this episode.
2: How I how I got into uh, environmental policy was essentially I'd left the army and um, wanted to go to university. And I I went back to where my parents live, which is uh, was north of Toronto in a place called Thornhill, which was a suburb of Toronto uh, or became a suburb of Toronto because when I grew up as a kid, it was basically... Farmland and, and forest all the way north from there, um, all the way up through Newmarket. And you could you could basically ride a dirt bike or a bicycle all the way to Wasega Beach, um, virtually uninterrupted by by uh, towns or, or or urban areas. And um, uh, in, in the intervening period when I'd been in the army, it, huge amounts of development had happened. And I kind of wondered how these decisions got made to use land in that way. And so when I went to university, um, I decided to take something called environmental studies, which was kind of an emerging area of study at the time. And this would have been 1991. And uh, and I took some courses. And then, you know, r- very quickly it, it, it became clear that the impact of market economies uh, on the environment uh, was such that, you know, vast amounts of resources were being extracted and things produced and then ending up as waste and that this was going to be as the population increased and demand for consumer goods increased, um, that this was going to become a huge issue. And so it sort of captured my attention and I, you know, I sort of focused on the science side of things initially. Um, so that sort of was my predisposition on my undergrad. but But later on, it became quite clear that you can't really understand these problems until you understand how the economy works. And so uh, uh, I was hired by a consulting firm to work on on economic modeling. and so I you know I, I programmed uh, their computers uh, to run these econometric models and and uh, manage these big databases of information that went into these models. And it was from there that Uh, I came to understand that to shape how economies work, you need to shape the rules uh, that govern economies, which are uh, the laws that we make. So that's how I really got into understanding public policy and um, how public policy can be shaped for certain economic outcomes. And, And then from there, you know, my focus has gone to Institutional design which is how do we design laws to get the outcomes we want as a society um how do we administer those laws what are norms in society that help us uh that, that supplement laws and norms are things like how you and i greet each other in the morning or uh the ethic of not throwing litter on the ground or uh how we view climate change and the decisions that we make individually and what we ask our politicians to do and it's everything simple day-to-day decorum to uh, the values that we hold and how we interact with each other and how we h- how we make decisions in an informal non-regulated way um, and, so, and so you know that interest is really um, that's what's carried me forward is is working on these problems from a multi-dimensional aspect which is understand the science, understand the economics, understand the competition and trade policy, understand uh, the rules that we have today and why they're not working, um, and to try to seek outcomes um, that continue to deliver the innovation and the market exchanges that result in wealth, and I don't mean wealth uh, when I say wealth, I don't mean just uh, a thicker wallet, but uh, a society that exchanges ideas and creates value amongst each other. Um, and uh, so how do we preserve that and drive innovation while dealing with the problems that we we, we have at hand? And so that's kind of what's consumed me um, for what's coming on to 30 years uh, of, of, of what I've done.
3: And I think as as examples, I guess ones that I know, like you've worked on a bike tariff that was going to affect the Canadian, just like the entrance of Canadian or bikes into Canada, and then also some work with sort of our, our beer store bottle exchange, right?
2: Yeah, so, being, you know, a, a wide range uh, of of work that I've done. So, um, you know, in Ontario, uh, well, across Canada, the brewers run a refillable bottle system where they recover bottles and they refill them. And um, you know, one bottle displaces twenty single-use uh, packages, and that system really is quite an elegant model of of what I call a circular economy, or what we call a circular economy, which I'll which I'll unpack a bit later when we chat about it. Um, um, and and then to things like as as you mentioned, how um, to promote cycling, and and when um, and 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 that's been a very interesting topic because at the time British Columbia had no provincial sales tax on bicycles and that was seen as a means to incentivize people to buy bikes and Ontario was considering um, going down the same track and, and my argument was yes that's that's a good thing encouraging cycling in any form is a good thing but really the impediment To an uptake on cycling is urban infrastructure. People do not feel safe on their bikes and I would argue that if they had a much safer cycling experience such as divided lanes and and pathways and proper interconnectivity between paths in Toronto that um, we would get a much uh, that, that would create a much greater incentive for cycling as a way to avoid the traffic for vehicles and that really another approach would be to continue to collect sales tax, but to sequester some amount of government revenue. I'm not suggesting earmarking that tax itself, but apportioning some portion of overall general revenue and directing that to cycling infrastructure. Um, and so the barrier there has been uh people feeling safe on their bikes and and the argument that I made to the bicycle industry, which looked at the uh the sales tax reduction as an immediate opportunity for increased sales was uh, my own story and my brother's story as kids we were bought bikes by our parents and those bikes uh because we grew up in, in outside of the city in, in a, a suburb you could cycle everywhere and bikes became indispensable for for our freedom i I, to this day equate being on my bike to being free and that freedom uh to move on our bikes uh has carried us through our lives and we've become avid cyclists uh my brother's an avid road biker and i'm a mountain biker um and and that's a product of of that youthful experience on our bikes and and i would i and i suggested to the to the industry Time, that building cycling infrastructure and getting kids to ride to school every day is going to build a huge base of cycling enthusiasts, which will be your consumers for life. Um, and today they'll be buying, you know, bikes to ride to school. And 25 years from now they'll be buying the latest high-end carbon fiber mountain bike or road bike and all the paraphernalia and gear that we all love to buy. And and so that so it, that was another discussion where you look at the design of policy that, that, and how it has incentives and, and you make different choices recognizing that they have different outcomes.
3: Well, and that's, I mean, I think both those examples, the brewery example and the bicycling, maybe the bicycling one's better because people can maybe relate who are listening, you know, it, in in principle, you're like, Oh yeah. Okay. No tax on the bike. We're really excited. We're going to sell more bikes. But then you miss that. Well, now there's less tax money that in theory, you know, road quality, if not road, you know, bicycling infrastructure, is, is potentially decreased because of that, cho- that incentive or that choice, right?
2: Yeah, and, and when we went into government, eventually government did uh, do both. They first removed the sales tax, and then later on they sequestered, the Ontario government at the time sequestered $30 million for cycling infrastructure. In that period, I was involved in uh, establishing through the Bicycle Trade Association of Canada, establishing uh, what was called the Toronto Cyclist Union, uh, which is now uh, Cycle Toronto, I believe. Um, and, uh, that all became about a focus on, on infrastructure. And, um, you know, I think if you look at the cycling infrastructure in Toronto and this would have been, um, 2008. So we're now coming on to 12 years since, uh, since those, those efforts. And you look at the development of cycling infrastructure in Toronto, Toronto lags behind many other cities, but it's come a long way in the last 12 years. And you can look at the statistics about people cycling. Um, so, so you know, there again is is threading the needle on policy. Is what, what you think might work is not always self-evident, and you needed to make some supplemental arguments that I think are worth are, 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 are you know is it's worth thinking about. One is uh, you avoided greenhouse gas emissions associated with cycling. Uh, you know, uh, riding a road bike or a commuter bike. Um, that commuter bike is one of the most efficient machines devised by man. It converts, uh, well over 95% of human power into power. Um, it's good for fitness. It's good for health. Uh, it reduces congestion and you can go on and on. So there's these, these unpriced positive externalities in economics. We talk about negative externalities is pollution and waste. But cycling has positive externalities in the sense that there's these spin-off benefits from riding your bike, which then have a value to public policymakers as well. So it's a win-win-win situation. And so the bang for the buck that you get from spending a dollar tax, uh, of taxpayers' money to reduce greenhouse gases versus cycling is gives you a very big bang for the buck as a public policymaker. And so those are additional arguments that we have to make.
3: Yeah. And it's tricky um, because there's all these competing, like I, I would imagine this, This, I guess is maybe my last question on sort of exactly what you do. And then we'll get into the nitty gritty of the circular economy and so forth. But is I, I've, I've always wondered, like you're fighting for this, you know, a policy of environmentalism, you know, um, cycling, you know, re- recycling, whatever. Is, is there like an evil Usman who's like fighting against you, I guess? Like it must be that someone's fighting for the you know whatever big business or pollution or you know big pollution whoever's is there like an evil version of you maybe not um, maybe you can't say evil but is there a, someone who's fighting against you or, or uh, opposing you
2: uh invariably there always is and that's typically incumbents in in market so um if you're making widgets and you can sell as many of them as you can and make a whole bunch of profit extracting raw material and and generating a bunch of waste and greenhouse gases and you make a pile of profit doing that and you don't pay for the waste widgets that end up in the ocean or in the landfill or, 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 or as litter. Um, then those negative externalities that resource consumption and waste is an unpriced, uh, component of producing your product. And so you, you reap a windfall profit by not paying those costs. And, um, Every industry that's been doing that for decades and decades has got army of lobbyists and, and quote-unquote experts making the argument that they should continue to be able to do that, or at least sewn up discord and confusion that it slows the public policy uh, process down. And so, you know, I can look across a myriad uh, of issues, everything from, um, you know, recycling systems that are designed to basically have the taxpayer pay for them that don't work very well, um, to the greenhouse gas issue that, that, that we're, we're all dealing with now, which is uh, the production of, of oil and gas and the demand for that oil and gas um, by transportation and industry, and the claims that we got to keep doing what we're doing or our economy is going to collapse and we're all going to be starving and we're going to be back in the 16th century if, if we don't continue doing what we're doing. And these are all arguments that are designed to play on people's fears so that, yes, there is there is invariably someone that's uh, doing what I do, what I'm doing, but but to try to slow the bus down and uh, try to preserve the status, the profitable status quo for as long as possible.
3: And I guess it strikes me, too, that it, it's not always like evil, as, as I've coined it here. It, it's There's just competing interests, competing incentives, right? There's... The business that's existed for many years who's employed a ton of people and it just they used, um, you know, manufacturing in in another country uh, because it was cheaper. Right. And that was fine for many years. Um, So it's not that they're necessarily bad, but it's just there's competing interests. Right. And that, I guess, is the challenge in any of these discussions uh, around the environment or or what have you, that there's, you know, financial, environmental, ethical, um, whatever, there's different competing values right and that's that's really the struggle you'd be against all the time
2: yeah i mean i don't i don't like to to pass moral judgment though it's it's hard not to feel the other side is bad or evil when you know the evidence is there that what's going on is so damaging and so harmful but if you talk to uh those folks they would tell you they're protecting jobs that feed families and and all those sorts of things and and i don't discount any of that um the, the point I would make is that, um, uh, or not the point, the, the, the dynamic that changes the situation is when you have a new entrant in a market, and let's take a look at Tesla as a an automaker, and that automaker disrupts the status quo and finds a way to bring a new innovation to market that... Uh, take existing technologies and bring them together to create a new innovation, which is, you know, the case of your iPhone, for instance, Um, and and that disrupts the entire market and it changes that dynamic. And then, you you know, the public then can see there's a way to do a less polluting, less carbon intensive, better thing here um, that results in the same, if not more jobs and investment and wealth and all of those sorts of positive things that that we're hoping for. And really the, you know, the, the best public policies on the environment are ones that drive innovation and don't block innovators from entering the market and the market then goes the way it does. And, and eventually those arguments, um, that the, the incumbents are making, uh, they, they, become moot, they become irrelevant. And, you know, you can look at the coal industry in North America, the coal fired power generation, um, That's basically being taken at the knees by innovations, uh, both in production of natural gas, but more recently and more aggressively through renewable energy. And that was a case of government subsidizing and incentivizing innovation. And it's the innovators in the market that have brought the cost of solar and, and wind power to the point that coal is no longer competitive. And so so, I think you listen to those arguments, but, as public policymakers or people providing public policy advice, you're always looking for what I described earlier, which is the win win win. You want to drive innovation. You want to drive a society that's wealthier, and again, I don't just mean money wise, but but overall prosperity wise um, and and defeat those arguments through sh- through sheer market forces. Um, so that's always the objective in my mind.
3: And you mentioned prosperity that you uh, are part of, I guess, the Smart Prosperity Institute, and have put together a great document, which I, I, I read and tried to comprehend for our, our our interview. So I'll link to that document in their website. Um, a large part of that, I guess, is the the concept of the circular economy. Did you want us to take, or did you want to take us through, sort of what that means? Now that we've talked about a few examples and sort of the incentives and so forth.
2: Yeah, I think so. Um... Uh, so yeah, I did write that paper for the Smart Prosperity. I'm writing in another one on a concept called extended producer responsibility, and 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 that paper is really about, I mean, manufacturers taking responsibility for their products once consumers are done with them, and and extended producer responsibility is a public policy that drives a circular economy. And and I guess I guess if I talk about the circular economy, the first thing I want to say is that it's not about recycling per se though recycling is an activity that happens under circular economy um it's not recycling on steroids it's something completely different and so let's let's give an example that all of us as sort of uh um uh, you know people that enjoy the outdoors or definitely enjoy riding bikes could think of so today you go into uh your bike shop and you shop and you want to buy yourself a new road bike and so Um, you get yourself a new road bike. It's fantastic. It's, you know, carbon fiber and it's got carbon fiber rims and it's got all the greatest componentry and whatnot. And, you know, you, you, you ride the crap out of that bike for 10 years and you put thousands and thousands of miles on it. And eventually it either cracks or, um, you want a new bike. Um, So what happens to the old bike? Well, today, when we manufacture a carbon fiber frame, that manufacturer is not giving any consideration whatsoever to what happens to the carbon fiber that's in in that frame. The carbon fiber is uh, the the product of some very uh, intricate design work. Uh, It's the product of uh, emerging and uh, highly specialized material science, uh, how to take carbon, and uh, then take a matrix to put that carbon in, the the resins, to produce a super strong, super lightweight frame. But that frame was never designed for recyclability. It wasn't in the designer's mind. And so something happens to all that that material and all the energy that went into that frame. And typically, that frame goes to waste. The metals and the components may get recycled, but even that, uh, you've got aluminum mixed with steel, et cetera. Even those components were never designed for disassembly, they may have gotten repaired or refurbished through the through the life of the bike, but but they're now become waste. Now, imagine someone designing a type of carbon fiber that gives you all of the properties that we've talked about. But also at the end of life, that uh, materials in the carbon fiber can be reutilized. Uh, the resins can be recovered and recycled as chemical substrates for the next production cycle of carbon fiber and the carbon itself can be, can be repurposed. Um, that, that idea that you can build something, you can use it throughout its life and refurbish it and extend its life. Um, that all the materials in it are then recovered and repurposed in in a market economy that anything that goes into the environment, uh, can be assimilated by the environment as food. So if there's any waste emanating from any product that we have that goes into the environment, it goes out as as, as a nutrient, a biological nutrient. Anything that can't is recycled as, quote-unquote, a technical nutrient that can go into the next cycle of manufacturing. And the entire process from raw materials extraction through closing the loop on those materials is powered by renewable energy. Um that, in a nutshell, is a circular economy, and in such a circular economy, if we were producing, let's say, our carbon fiber bike or aluminum bike, take aluminum as a different material, we would be using solar energy to run the aluminum smelter. We would have uh, a type of smelting process which is being developed, it's actually being commercialized, that the smelting process itself does not generate carbon dioxide uh, through the uh, By taking bauxite to aluminum, the aluminum would go into a bike, the bike would get used and refurbished, and then that aluminum would be recovered and would be repurposed back into bicycles or vehicles or aircraft in a tight, tight loop, and there would be no waste in that process. That's kind of what we're striving for, but that really requires a reinvention of how we design things, how we distribute things how we consume things, and what we do with them at the end of life. And uh, so right now, there is a big focus on plastics uh, because we are producing a tremendous amount of plastics that's growing at an incredible rate. Um, our recycling rate globally is about 9% for plastics. A significant amount of plastic leaks into the, into the environment, especially the marine environment. Um, and the greenhouse gases associated with plastics are that we generate about 1.9 metric tons of greenhouse gases for every ton of plastics that we produce. And we're producing more and more of it, uh, plastics. If we look at petrochemical products, number one are fertilizers, which we use to grow food. Uh, that's that's a number one petrochemical product, uh, not a fuel, but a product that we produce from fossil resources. And number two are plastics. And so... Um, We have a huge challenge in dealing with plastics and plastics themselves are a fantastic material. Uh, They uh, make for lightweight products. They make for durable products. Uh, As a matter of fact, their durability is a bit of a problem because they persist for a very long time. Um, And so they have a, you know, they're easy to mold and shape. Uh, just just look at your sports equipment that you've got. And there's plastics in everything. There's plastics in your cycling helmet. Um, there's going to be plastics in your entire backpack if you're a climber and your ropes, your nylon ropes. Nylon is a plastic. Your packs made of plastic. Plastics everywhere. So um, uh, so it's a ubiquitous material and it has a lot of good properties. The problem is is in its production from fossil resources and what we do with it at end of life and so there's a, a circular economy uh for plastics which is uh you can pull oil and gas out of the ground and make plastics or you can take sunlight and uh suck carbon dioxide out of the air and take the sunlight and split water to make hydrogen and you can make plastic sunlight water and carbon dioxide yeah uh, So, you're effectively making plastic the way plants turn sunlight, water, and carbon dioxide into wood.
3: This is already Uh, a thing. This exists.
2: This is already a thing. And actually, where I live in Squamish, British Columbia, um, there's a company here called Carbon Engineering, and they are actually uh, sucking carbon dioxide out of the air and are able to turn that carbon dioxide into fuels, uh, like to split hydrogen. And so this is already a thing and it. You can either turn that CO2 back into a fuel or you can turn it into ethylene and make plastic. So this is already a thing. And then on the back end, we have a tremendous amount of innovation in Canada on taking plastics and breaking them down chemically and recovering the molecules in plastics to then recirculate those back into the next cycle of plastic. So the question becomes why isn't this happening today? And it isn't happening today at any scale because of what I described earlier. It's really cheap to take natural gas and oil and plastic, use it once, dump it in a landfill or throw it into an incinerator or or have it end up as litter. And you as a producer of a plastic product or a company that's packaging your products in plastic don't pay anything to do that. And so the question then becomes... What laws can we write that uh, impose a cost for polluting um, and create incentives for using recycled plastic or producing plastic from renewable chemistries? And so that's kind of the issue um, that I'm working on, and and I am incredibly fortunate to be working with a number of companies that in Canada that are innovators that are trying to uh, change the dynamic and do so in a manner that, again, is, is going to be a better experience for consumers, a tremendously uh, better um, uh, environmental outcome in terms of reduced greenhouse gases, in terms of reduced waste, um, but also will give us all of the utility and all of the functionality that we get from plastic today. So, so again, going back to my theme of win-win-win, Uh, That's what we're looking for here with plastics, and and Canada is uniquely poised, um, I think, to work on this because of our experience in the oil and gas sector. We have a tremendous base of chemical engineering and chemistry in Canada that makes us ideally suited to figure out the technological side. We just need the public policy side to catch up and drive this innovation.
3: Yeah, I mean, they seem like such large issues. Um, you know, you've given us a couple examples of, of governments, you know, with the cycling, with the bottle return and stuff that are sort of hopefully moving in, in the correct direction. I'm wondering, as we get to the end of our time, is there, like, how do you think about this as, as a person, not that the way you lead your life is the way anyone else has to, um, we'll give that caveat, but the, you know, how do you, as a cyclist, as an, you know, outdoor enthusiast, you do a lot of different sports, you um, how do you think about this whole like environmental, like plastics are in everything, you know, water use, like how do you even parse this out?
2: Well, I, I think about it the same way I think about how I might train for a mountain bike race, which is, um, every day is a day I go out and, um, I ride a bit harder. I, I rest a bit more. I eat a bit better. Um, I do all of these little, little activities that incrementally and cumulatively add up to a stronger me. And so when I work on these issues, if I look at the plastics problem globally, or I look at climate change and greenhouse gases, it can be quite overwhelming to, to, to look at the problem at that level and say, what can little old me do about it? But I, I choose to take little bite-sized chunks of the problem and focus intensely on them and find a strategy to try to improve that one situation and set precedence and drive innovation that will then move it along. So it's like anything else. Every day is a set of incremental improvements and effort and measurement of how you're progressing and then changing your strategy on how you deal with the issue or find better information or, uh, engage with actors that are more likely to drive the agenda or present new arguments to government or, or, or on behalf of government or on behalf of industry. So I'm constantly looking for the edge and the edges in, in, in what I do in my professional life is information and uh, and market market power uh, so getting the right players engaged with things and that's not so different than what we do. On when we've got an objective to, you know, climb a certain pitch that we've never climbed before or clean a move, you know, a technical mountain bike move or win a mountain bike or a road bike race, it's about incremental constant effort and focus and measurement and uh, retrenching and looking at what progress you're making and then refining your strategy as you move forward. And, uh, you know, I, I, I remember when... Uh, there was a period you were training me, you know, I was kind of uh, frustrated and, and you would tell me that the rest days are as important, if not more important than your hard, hard effort days. And in my professional life, I find that's true too. Sometimes you just have to step back a bit and take a break and get more focused um, and and kind of get a broader perspective on how your efforts going um, and, and sort of regroup before you make the next effort. And so, there's some pretty strong parallels between how I do my day-to-day stuff and how I've looked at improving my performance when I'm going out on adventures or you know want want to go on an enduro and and do a little better than I did the year before. I think there there's common threads in our life about how to make progress in things.
3: Yeah, I think that I think that makes sense, right? Like you sort of doing the best you can, and like you said, little increments and learning a little bit more here, and and I think the you touched on sort of just the idea of like interacting with people who are going to pull you ahead or, you know, help magnify your efforts. Um, you know, that was sort of my hope in, in having you on was just spreading this word that, you know, there are people out there doing stuff, but it's, um, I think as I get older, I become aware that like there isn't necessarily a room of quote unquote adults, like dealing with these, like, you know, you're a guy I've known for a long time and was hugely respected and always hoped that you were doing amazing things to help out the world. Um, but I think as I get older, it's like, You know, there is opportunities for all of us to make a change and be some of those, you know, again, quote unquote adults in the room, you know, making some of these big changes and choices. And this could be in, you know, someone's business, you know, looking into some of these policies and changes in ways of of developing things and innovations. Like I know we have a lot of really smart people that listen. So hopefully even just by you and me talking today, which is overdue um hopefully you know maybe some ideas some wheels are turning for for some of the listeners as well um if someone who's been wanting to get in touch with you or through smart prosperity is there is there an easy way you know i'll link a bit to some of the stuff i've read as i say but is there a best way for someone to reach out to you or or to the the key people in, in these areas
2: well i think um sending me an email is always a good thing uh i am uh Quite active on Twitter, uh, which is not a great means for communication, but it will sort of give. give I, people I appreciate an idea, all your but. tweets, though. So, uh, <laughs> read them all. So, uh, so the things that I'm thinking about or things I'm reading, I typically end up end up tweeting on them. But, but definitely email is a good way to go. Um, I, I'm uh, I'm not a fellow of the Smart Prosperity Institute. I'm a contributing author and and a researcher, so. Um, I don't have a permanent post there, as it were, so it's best just to get a hold of me uh, directly, Um, and I'm always happy to chat. And I do do agree. I think uh, discussions like this that are heard by third parties are uh, incredibly powerful. Um, None of the none of the things that we've talked about today are going to be solved uh, by technology alone. They're going to be solved by the interaction of people. People create problems and people solve problems. And uh, one of the most powerful things in human society are collaborations and exchanges of information and community. So these are incredibly important things. And uh, the community of recreationalists and athletes is um, an important, uh, incredibly important constituency because they're connected to the land and if I look at the community I live in, in British Columbia, um, all my neighbors are mountain bikers, rock climbers, uh, whitewater, kayakers, kite boarders, um, you name it. Uh, they're doing everything there is to do here. And invariably they're very sensitive to how things work, um, in, in the natural environment and what we do in our daily lives and how that affects the natural environment. And I think, um, you know, even people living in urban areas that are out uh, out enjoying the environment get to understand that everything we do is interconnected. We are not apart from the world. We are part of the world. Um, and that it's through communities and community action, whether those communities are just a small town or states and provinces uh, and nations, we're gonna make a difference. and so just being aware And making choices or pressing your local government for action on a topic can have a huge, huge force when it's done by many, many people over broad areas. So I agree completely, I think. Um, And that's why I'm so happy to be on your podcast is these discussions uh, amplify and magnify. They're just uh, a great opportunity to talk about these things.
3: Well, Usman, thank you for, for humoring me today and coming on and chatting. Um,
2: it's been a pleasure and a, and an honor to be on your podcast.
0: Thanks so much for tuning in to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Uh, you can check out my stuff over at theoutdooredit.com or by following me on Instagram and Twitter at Molly J. Hereford. And you can check out Peter's coaching, training plans, blogs, all that fun stuff over at smartathlete.ca or by following him on Twitter and Instagram at Peter Glassford. And if you want to support this show and other awesome podcasts, please check out wideanglepodium.com for show info, other podcasts, bonus content, and to become a donating member so you can get all of that rad behind the scenes content and help keep shows like this on the air. And lastly, if you're enjoying this podcast and all the information that we're bringing to you every single week, uh, do us a solid and pop into iTunes to leave us a rating and review. It takes you about two seconds. You can do it on your computer. You can do it on your phone. And it really helps us out. Thanks so much. And we will see you next week.